and because of this had become momentarily a public person, written up in the St. Paul Dispatch. My father, modest, shy as he was, had made a difficult, unpopular public stand. And suddenly it seemed utterly right to me that resistance had been his wish, his intention. It made a kind of emotional sense that caused me to feel instantly how little sense my earlier more or less unframed assumptions had made. Of course, I thought. And with that thought, it was as though my father stepped forward to meet me as he had been in 1940. Twenty-five years old, newly married, teaching literature and history and religion at his first real job as an assistant professor at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. That stage of his life, and he in it, had always been indistinct to me, as the lives of parents before their children exist always are to those children. But now, holding this letter in my hands, I remembered anew and vividly the numerous photographs in our family albums of him then, a slender young man, intense-looking and handsome, with a shock of dark hair swept back from his high forehead. A radical young man, it would seem, more radical in many ways than my own son was now. A young man ready, perhaps even eager, to embrace the fate his powerful beliefs were calling him to. Sitting there, I felt a rush of love and pity for him in his youth, in his passionate convictions, really the same feeling I often had for my son when he argued his heartfelt positions. Abruptly they seemed alike to me, and equally dear, my father, my son. I felt as though my father had been waiting for this moment to be born to me as the young man he'd been, so touchingly willing to bear witness to his conscience, and the surprise of this new sense of him, this birth, was a gift to me, a sudden balm in those days of my most intense grief. But what had called him back? What made him turn away from his choice, which would have been hard, of course, but satisfying, too, in the way that acting on our deepest feelings and commitments is always satisfying. What made him take the easier path, the one that kept him safe, home, out of prison, the exemption, but the path that also denied him the satisfaction of acting on his beliefs, that pride of bearing witness? He'd kept another letter in the envelope with the one from the young Reverend Wilson, and this one I can't quote from. It angered me so much that I threw it away after reading it. It was written a few months after Winslow Wilson's, and it was from my grandfather, my mother's father. It counseled my father against taking the path that beckoned him. As part of its argument, it pointed to my mother's pregnancy, which she must just have discovered, and it suggested, terribly delicately, a kind of vulnerability, perhaps even a slight instability on her part, to which my father would be abandoning her and their child if he were imprisoned. Of course, the letter said, if my father truly felt this was the right thing to do, to ask my mother to manage this difficult situation, he and my grandmother, they lived nearby, he was the pastor of a large and prominent Minneapolis church, would do all they could to provide the support she would need in my father's absence. There was more. My grandfather called up the contract my father would be breaking with the college, the responsibilities he'd undertaken there that he would be abandoning. But again, he affirmed his support, of course, if my father felt this was the right thing to do. For fifty years, my father had kept these two letters together, 
the one that embraced him in his decision and confirmed his choice to make his life a kind of witness to his faith and beliefs, and the other which cautioned against it. And during all those years, he'd spoken not a word of regret, of bitterness or sorrow, for the choice he'd made in the end. He'd never even made an accounting of that choice in my presence, as if in making his decision he'd lost forever the right to speak of the beliefs he hadn't acted on. I was sitting in my own sunny living room in Boston when I read these letters. I stayed there for a while, staring out at the red brick church across the street, thinking about this new sense of my father and welcoming it. And then I remembered, I realized, that I in fact did have a written explanation he'd made of himself and of his choice. I went up to my study and scrambled through my files of family papers until I found it. It was a homily my father had given at my older brother's wedding. This is it, in its entirety. There is a certain similarity between marriage and the Christian religion which is suggested by the text in our Gospel reading, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. The dominant note at the beginning of marriage is the joy of mutual possessing, of a choosing triumphantly accomplished, and this is as it should be. So in religion, there is at the beginning often a searching and a choosing, an affirming of that good which one may serve with conviction, and this too is as it should be. But in time we see more. We become aware that our seeking and our choosing is not so self-determined as we had thought, but our response to a seeker who had already found us. We come to understand that text, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. So with marriage we understand more in time. Deeper than the joy of a choosing triumphantly fulfilled is the awareness of a need to be met, of a claim acknowledged. Few things are as potent to give meaning to life as the sense of answering a need and fulfilling a responsibility which no one else can meet. It is wonderful indeed that we can choose and achieve our choice, but still more wonderful that we are chosen. Reading the homily in this new context made it more moving to me than it had been the first times I had read it. And like the revelation that my father would have chosen to resist conscription, it seemed suddenly right to me, more deeply right than before. It made me understand him. My father, a young, impassioned man, had chosen twice, and twice he'd chosen in joy and triumph, his faith and my mother. And then it turned out that each of those two choices presented the claim to be acknowledged he spoke of in the homily. Further, it turned out that those claims, as construed by my grandfather, and, I must assume, as accepted in that construction by my father, conflicted. My father had to find a way to reconcile them, or to decide which claim took precedence. In the event, he honored the personal claim, the smaller, more private one, and never spoke of the decision again. My older brother's wedding, for which the homily was written, took place in 1968. Sixteen years later, when I was to be married for the second time, I asked my father to preside as minister at the ceremony, and having checked with my brother and sister-in-law first, I asked him to read the same homily he'd read at their wedding, which I'd found so moving, even without yet understanding its fullest implications in my father's life. My father said yes, 
But when the moment came for that part of the service, something seemed to go wrong in him. He held the paper in front of him, but he didn't seem to be able to read it. I tried to indicate to him that it was all right. I leaned forward. I think I touched his arm. After a moment, his voice shaking, he spoke a few improvised words in place of the homily and then pronounced his blessing on us. Chapter 2 On a June morning in 1986, I was sleeping late in the bright sunshine pouring into my bedroom. This gift for sleep has left me in the seventeen years or so since these events took place, but on that day I'd been enjoying it, rising up to consciousness, then diving down again for a little while. When I heard the door to the bedroom open, someone came in. There was a touch on my shoulder and I opened my eyes. My husband was bending over me. His lower face was covered in shaving foam, and I was suddenly engulfed in that lathery scent. There were one or two broad, dark stripes in the white on his cheek, marking the path of the razor where he'd started to shave and had been interrupted. He looked strange, partly on that account, of course, but partly because there was fear in his face. He was speaking to me in a deliberately controlled voice, slowly and carefully, but what he was saying made no sense. It was about my father, the police, and my father. The police had him, my father. He was somewhere in western Massachusetts. The police were on the phone. They wanted to talk to me. I was almost instantly up, grabbing for clothing, incoherently asking questions. What do you mean? What police? Western Massachusetts? I thundered down the stairs to the kitchen, where the only phone was. We had none upstairs because Ben, my son, was seventeen then, and his friends could be counted on several times a week to call him after eleven, after twelve, long past the time my husband and I went to bed in any case. The receiver dangled on the cord from its wall base, almost touching the floor. I picked it up and said, Hello, said my name, and then stood there, staring out at the start of this beautiful sunny day, trying to make some sense of what the man's voice on the other end of the line was talking about. What I remember most clearly now is that he said the person they had in custody, James Nichols, they'd picked him up between three and four in the morning in semi-rural territory when he'd knocked on someone's door announcing he was lost, claimed to be my father. I was indignant. Of course he was my father. James Nichols? He was my father. He said so, didn't he? What was their problem? I didn't know then any of the other claims he'd made, that he'd encountered a number of small, strange people in his nighttime wandering, that he'd been driving a van, which seemed to have utterly disappeared. They'd scanned the area for it to no avail. In that context, probably other things he told them, that he was a retired professor from Princeton Theological Seminary, for instance, seemed unlikely, too. But for now, it was the word itself, claimed, that struck me, in its distrust and dismissal of my father's perspective. It was a word I would come to hear more and more often as Dad descended into illness. Well, he claimed he did this. He claimed he saw that. He claimed he thought it was his room. But here... This first time with a stranger, it was startling and offensive. I asked to speak with him. The officer wouldn't let me. He wanted me to come out there. They would release him to me once I arrived. He wanted to know how long I'd be. I didn't know. Where were they exactly? 
He gave me general directions, and I made a guess. I got off the phone, and now it was my husband's turn to ask the futile questions. Together, though, as I quickly got ready to go, brushing my teeth, drinking coffee, washing my face, we constructed a story that made a kind of sense. Under pressure from us, his children, my father had recently agreed to sell his house in New Jersey. We thought he was too isolated there since my mother's death six years earlier. My sister and I had helped him divide up his possessions. Some were shipped ahead to Denver, to an apartment near her where he was going to live for a few years. Some were given away, to the four of us if we laid claim to them, or to the Salvation Army. Some I had hauled to his summer house in New Hampshire in a big rental truck. But there were the last few items left for him to live with until the closing, and he told me recently on the phone that he was going to rent a small van and take them up to New Hampshire himself. What my husband and I concluded now was that it must have been on the way up to or back from this chore that he'd gotten lost in western Massachusetts and somehow seemed confused enough to warrant a kind of detention, if not arrest. It takes more than two hours to get from Boston to the other end of the state. Plenty of time for me to imagine multiple variations on this story, other plot lines that might have led to this outcome. But what I couldn't do for the entire length of the trip was to imagine my father at the center of the drama. That remained a mystery to me, what the actor had felt, what he could have been thinking as he acted, what on earth he was up to. My father was a small man, trim and neat. He had a gentle, nearly apologetic voice. He cleared his throat often, a tick, and also a response to chronic dryness. He often had trouble being forceful or direct. I couldn't imagine him so modest, so self-effacing as to be almost comical sometimes, so much wishing not to be trouble for anyone, doing what the police described, stumbling around the countryside trying to wake someone, ringing doorbells in the middle of the night, bothering people. Not my father. I was appalled when I first saw him through the glass pane of a door the police pointed me to. He was sitting up, alone in a kind of waiting room set with several chairs. He appeared to be sleeping. When I came into the room, his eyes opened. He saw me with a kind of relief, but with none of the deep recognition that lights a face. He looked terrible. He was unshaven. He was wearing old clothes, worn and wrinkled and faded. He had on a particularly unfortunate hat he was fond of a canvas hat he often wore when he went fishing.